If you are with your Bibles, open them to 1 Peter 3, and we're continuing our study there. And I want to read the text we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17, which is very, very appropriate for the times in which we live. 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 13. Peter writes and says, And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their fear, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear, having a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who despaired your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing good rather than for doing wrong. So today we're going to return to this study that we've been having in the great apostle Peter's first letter. And today we're coming face to face with something that really has confronted and confounded Christians for thousands of years. And what I'm talking about, namely, is this idea that is actually the title of our message today, which is righteous living in an unrighteous world. How do you live righteously in an unrighteous world? In other words, we come to this section in Peter's letter where he addresses the question, how can a believer remain faithful when everyone around them is without faith? How can a believer remain faithful in a world that is faithless? You've probably dealt with that question before. It's very, very common, whether it be in your office or in a polling place or whether it be in the nightly news or a podcast or listening to the radio or in your own home. The whole culture around us crushes us and convicts us and challenges us. So how can a child of God remain committed to doing good to those who seem to have committed themselves to doing wrong to us? How can a Christian devote themselves to a life of godliness when everyone near and dear to them seems to find their greatest joy in life in bringing trouble into our life? It's a profound dilemma, and it is certainly a reality for all of us who are believers, all of us who love Christ, especially all of us who are in the midst of struggles within the confines, listen to this, of marriage, of marriage. Now, starting in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 13, the apostle Peter here, who once himself was a very recalcitrant offspring of Jesus' followers, he's addressing in a very profound way how those who have been dealt unrighteously Those who have been given righteousness by Christ are living in a hostile and ungodly world to learn to stand strong in it. And this ability to stand strong in the midst of these incredible trials that they were going through, even at that time, is not something that is easy, but it is something that God has given us an opportunity to rehearse before we actually confront it in the world. In other words, what I'm trying to say is God has given us, all of us who are in homes and within marriages and families, an opportunity to rehearse kind of a spiritual first aid for how to deal with the world outside of us by first dealing with the emergencies within us. Let me say it another way. God gives us many profound spiritual opportunities 
to live righteously before an unrighteous world in the most common of places called marriage. Marriage, first and foremost, and this is how I want to frame it for you today, is going to be the way that we can most successfully start to deal with unrighteous elements in our world and live righteously within them. Now, you might be saying marriage. I didn't hear marriage in this at all. Where are you getting that? that? I'll show you. I'll make sure that you understand this. But let me say it this way. Your marriage is the most fundamental, essential, and radical testing ground for your Christian faith. And I say that as blessed people are shaking their heads in agreement. It's not because we're a marriage fellowship group. We're not a marriage fellowship group. We have all kinds of people here, married, single, uh, unequally yoked. But I say that because that's exactly what the Apostle Peter is saying, and I'm going to show that to you. One of the most important passages in all of the New Testament concerning righteous living before an unrighteous world is seen in the very opening verses here in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, where Peter is addressing the mistreated women of Asia Minor And he's talking about even when their husbands are ungodly to them, that they're to submit. They're to submit to their headship. And he tells them that if if they are married to a man who, according to the word, disobedient to the word, if he is disobedient, verse 1, to the word, then meaning they reject the gospel, meaning they're not living for the gospel, meaning they're living in disobedience to Scripture, if that's the situation that they find themselves in, they are to submit, submit themselves to the leadership of their husbands so they themselves might prove their Christian testimony. Now, this is deep as a well and very, very hard. Needless to say, the very foundational, most important passage of life for married believers is what Peter commands, which is this countercultural way of learning how to suffer within the confines even of your own home. And he tells them that when they do good to their undeserving husbands, they actually are sowing seeds for the gospel. Now, if you're familiar with the passage, Peter then supports this idea of the Old Testament example. We were there a few weeks ago. I'll just kind of unpack it for you a little bit more. He talks about Sarah's allegiance, remember? He talks about in the very first verses there, where in verse 5, he talks about former times holy women also who hoped in God adorned themselves. And then he brings up this situation of Sarah and Abraham. And he talks about Sarah's allegiance to Abraham and how she ultimately became the model for Christian women in showing how they can please God through submitting to a man who didn't always make the right decisions concerning her. Now, if you remember Abraham and that story, the great father of our faith, also he was the man who allowed his beautiful wife to fall into the hands of King Abimelech by telling him that she was his sister. Do you remember the story? Genesis 20, that's the story where Abraham was so afraid of the wickedness that was going to come upon him and the unrighteousness of the land that he decided to present his wife as his sister so that he wouldn't die. And by the way, Sarah actually is indeed the daughter of Abraham's father, but not the daughter of his mother, which made his wife his sister-in-law, which is a very convenient little detail that he didn't give out. She was more his wife than his sister, so he lied. And yet Sarah followed his headship. Listen to this. Sarah followed the headship of a man more than once who could have threatened her life through his sinful leadership 
And yet she is extolled in this passage before us in 1 Peter 3 as a woman who's to be copied and looked up to and emulated. And I say that because this is the issue. The issue to Peter was not Abraham's mismanagement of their household. His issue is Sarah's faithfulness to God in her submission to her husband's desires. The issue was not the unrighteousness of Abraham's actions, but the righteousness of Sarah's actions in spite of her circumstances. And I tell you this because though this passage comes 13 verses before our passage today, contextually, it is generally agreed upon that this, this is the key scenario concerning how all Christians should behave, married or not, should endure all unrighteous suffering in their lives by being zealous for good deeds. In other words, and try to think this through, the picture of silent suffering, the picture of silent suffering in an unequally yoked marriage is actually a mini portrait before the church of how all believers should endure the hostilities of this world. How a woman deals with her dis, an unbelieving husband and is faithful is also very important for us to understand as we endure the unfaithfulness of the world around us. It's very, very vital for us to understand this this morning. Why do I say that? Because every attitude, every behavior that Peter encourages among the believing wives of unbelieving husbands in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, now seven verses later is encouraged among all believers throughout all of Asia Minor within a pagan society. And that's an eye-opener. That's an eye-opener for sure. And you know what that tells me? It tells me that the most essential way, the most essential way for you and me to work out our Christian profession in the world is through the way we live at home. Is that counterintuitive or what? The way you live at home is the best way to prepare yourself on how to live within the world. The most vital and necessary way for you to prove your Christian faith both to yourself and to the world, is through the way you live your life before your spouse. It doesn't matter if your Christian testimony is really thought highly of at work. It doesn't matter if you're esteemed as the Christian pillar among the friends that you have in your community, in your neighborhood. Listen, if your Christian example isn't modeled first and foremost in the confines of your own marriage, then it really isn't real at all. This is, this is wow. This is revolutionary. This is radical. And Peter chooses the most intimate portrait imaginable to tell us about what it means to live for Christ. He tells us that the way you deal with unrighteous suffering at home is much more significant than you might have ever wanted to believe. You say, but you should see the way he treats me. doesn't matter. You say, but she's a nut job. Doesn't matter. You say, he's not leading me, he's sinning against me all the time. It's, that's not the issue. You say, she never follows me. She tries to wear the pants of the family. She's purposely ignoring my leadership. I'm sorry, but that's not what matters to God. According to Scripture, according to the Bible and the God who inspired the Bible, what matters most is the way you respond to the unrighteous world, nothing more, nothing less. And if the unrighteous world is your own home, then so be it. 
and it begins in the four corners of your house. It begins in the four corners of your home, and it spreads to your community, and then it overflows into your workplace and your schools and the government and the rest of the world, and it begins at home. But the example, the model of everything is your marriage. If you're not married, you can just look at your own household, the people that you live with. The way you are with the people you live with is essential. So this morning, we're going to look at a very familiar passage. Maybe some of you know it very, very well. But it's a passage that maybe you've never seen through the eyes of marriage, through the eyes of that relationship. And because all that follows in this great letter is the way that Christians are supposed to deal with suffering, that's what's going to take up the bulk of the rest of the letter. We're going to look at the model of suffering through the model of contextually marriage. Now, let me remind you what's happened here if you're new or if you haven't been here in a while Chapter 1, just to review the context, to kind of get some momentum going to get to this place. Chapter 1, Peter writes to inform this band of believers in Asia Minor that regardless of their circumstances, they're blessed. Regardless of their circumstances, they're blessed. Then he tells them they've been chosen by God unto salvation, and that that's an amazing inheritance, and that inheritance awaits them in heaven. And they're protected by the power of God, and they have to grasp these truths because trials are coming into their life, and the trials will come. We've said this when we were in the book of Job. You're either coming out of a trial, in a trial, or going to be in a trial. There's no other way to look at life. You're either coming out of a trial, in a trial, or coming out of a trial. That's the way it goes. And so he tells them they should live on this earth like obedient children, knowing they have a heavenly father knowing that they've been given life through faith in Christ in such a profound way. He says that even the angels ponder and are amazed at the fact that these things have been happening on earth. And in fact, this salvation that they've been given has set them apart from the world, even though they still live in the world. So chapter 2, building on this, he says you're supposed to, because of that, long for the pure milk of Scripture. You're to understand yourself as a holy nation. You're to abstain from fleshly lust as you once did. And in chapter 2, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent. Very key point. Keep your behavior excellent among the unbelievers, among the Gentiles, so that the thing that they slander you in, because as an evildoer, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, they end up glorifying God. And then, as you remember, for the rest of chapter 2, he just delineates how this godly behavior manifests itself to various areas of life, especially in the area of submission, submission. Submission, you say, yes, submission. I thought submission was only for wives with their husbands. No, that's, that's, that's the word that applies to every Christian in every form of life. I say that because if you remember going back, verse 13, he says, submit to every human institution, kings, governors, presidents, authorities. Verse 18, he says, Uh, They are to submit to their masters. That's the 21st century equivalent of your modern-day employer. They are to be, even if they're unreasonable, even if they're perverse. And then he speaks in that glorious part of chapter 2, verse 21 to 25, about Jesus Christ, the Lord himself, how he is the example of submitting to his his own unrighteous torturers in this life. And he continued to submit because he wanted to entrust himself to the Father. He submitted himself to death on a cross. He's trying to paint this picture of submission, the most humiliating thing possible, the God of glory on a cross submitting himself, even though he was an innocent man, being nailed there by depraved human beings. And so Peter has been emphasizing this 
great, great, great Christian salvation and the necessity of submission. Those are the two themes that he is emphasizing the most at this point. He's aligned the knowledge that we have of our salvation, what that really means with the behavior of submission to all earthly authorities, government, business, chapter 3, home, husbands, and wives. So now that we get to chapter 3, as we've been in for a few times now, chapter 3 to the end of the book, he's going to just zero in on this idea of living righteously in an unrighteous world. Again, that's the title of my message, living righteously in an unrighteous world. How is the Christian to react to unrighteousness? How is the Christian, how is the believer to respond to a world that does not believe? We saw last week, he starts this new emphasis by summing up everything that he has said to this point by a message that I had extreme makeover home edition. And we talked about that last time. There are essential perspectives that must engulf the person's life in the home if they're to live out their responsibilities before an unbelieving world. And so it begins with speaking to husbands and wives, and it flows into the context then of all believers in every aspect of life. Verse 8, he says from last time, to sum up, all of you. I've been talking to husbands, I've been talking to wives, now all of you is either husbands and wives, both of you, or the whole Christian community, both are true. You who live in this unbelieving empire, be selfless and loving and good instead of doing evil. Simple concept, profound ramifications. You remember he quotes in verse 10 from Psalm 34 to align himself with the thoughts of King David to say the situation is the same now as it was thousands of years before. And he says to the person in that section, referring to Psalm 34, to the person who really wants to live their lives to the fullest, you really want to live your life to the max, carpe diem, you really want to live your life fully, the one who really wants to love the life they've been given, who really wants to be happy, not just on a superficial level, but real deep, satisfying happiness, verse 10b, keep your lips from speaking deceit, Turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. In other words, and this is key, you need to remember the plight of God's people in Israel and know just like them, just like them in first century Asia Minor, that the answer to living to an unrighteous world is righteous living. The the answer to living in an unrighteous world is to live righteously. You don't combat this world by fighting against it. Or I should put it this way. The fight looks different. You combat this world by doing good within it. You know, that's why this whole conversion sermons that are going to be coming up next Lord's Day all over Canada and hear about preaching the truth. That's what's doing good. You you don't fight the psychology of it. You don't try to fight them on their ground. You do good and you reap the consequences. And the reason you can do that is because as those who have been redeemed from unrighteousness through faith, you know God is watching you, hears your prayers, and he opposes those that are determined to do you harm. And he said that in verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That brings us to this morning. So now, verses 13 through 17, Peter now begins to address these steps in overcoming unrighteous world. He gets very specific in his language. And he begins by bringing back to the forefront the same situation that he gave us earlier in chapter 3 when he was addressing the believing wife and the unbelieving husband. And what he says is now, the only exception is he's going to open up the language to say that every believer in every context needs to abide by these same principles. 
But he's taking it from, again, the context of marriage. Again, I want to look at righteous living in an unrighteous world. And the unrighteous world, and I want you to think about this because we all have our own stories. Keep in mind, the unrighteous world, for our purposes this morning, is your home, your spouse, the people you live with, the people that know you the best. These verses are going to provide some very practical, very, very comforting thoughts for those who might feel as if they're suffering unrighteously, in the hands of those who might be disobedient, in the hands of those spouses who might be contrary to the word of God. We're going to have four steps. If you're taking note, four steps to overcoming unrighteous suffering. Four steps to overcome unrighteous suffering. You could say four steps to fortify yourself away from evil when suffering comes. And the purpose of this is to win so that, if you have a so that, so that you can win those who are causing you to suffer to Christ. That's the goal. That's not in some kind of premeditative, wicked way. Yeah, well, maybe if you ever come to Christ one day, you'll see what happens. No, this is a real heart that desires the conversion of those around you. So the first step to overcoming unrighteousness suffering is, number one, realize the divine nature of suffering. First, realize the divine nature of suffering. Look at verses 13 and 14. Peter writes, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now, Peter is starting the section here by putting the whole idea of suffering into perspective. And he does this, first and foremost, by helping us realize some very, very basic truths that kind of set the stage for everything that we're going to look at. And the first realization he offers is this. It's very important. You need to understand that from a Christian's perspective, if your faith is in Christ, if you have been redeemed, if you have rejected this world and thrown yourself at the mercy of God's feet, you would need to understand no one can ultimately harm you. That's pretty good. No one can actually harm you. No one can do you any true, lasting, fundamental harm. If you're zealous for the cause of righteousness, or as our pastor would say, if you're obsessed with sanctification, zealous for righteousness, obsessed with sanctification, if you're consumed with the desire to do good before others, then you really have nothing to fear, Uh, nothing to cause you distress or anxiety. Have you ever thought of it that way? Why? Because nobody can ultimately harm you. No one ultimately can essentially in any significant way hurt you because you are, as Peter said earlier in chapter 1, verse 5, protected by the power of God through faith. So who is it that can harm you then? Name them. Name one person that can harm you. Is it a man? Is it a woman? A child? Can your boss harm you? A senator, a president, a husband, a wife, the neighbor, your client? What human person in the history of the world could possibly invade the forces and the fortress of Almighty God that surrounds you? You have a hedge built around you, if you will. This is the divine nature of suffering, that nothing you and I suffer in this life by the hands of any mortal can do any ultimate harm for us. Because God is watching, and God is hearing, and God is our God, and he is protecting us with the impenetrable shield of salvation. That's just a very basic understanding, and it's one that we don't often bring to mind. You can't see it in your English translations, but there's a Greek word 
their Allah, which comes from right before verse 13, that connects its thought back to verse 12, where Peter's just quoted Psalm 34. And the emphasis, and is emphasizing the divine omnipresence and omniscience of God on behalf of the redeemed. He's saying, if your faith is in Christ, if your faith is in the God of the Bible, then no ultimate harm will come upon you in this life. You say, but what? No harm. But how about, no, no harm. Have you considered, yes, no harm. You know what that suggests? That if you live your life by working out your salvation through doing good, if you live in your marriage with the determination to do aggressively the right thing at all times with your spouse, then you won't suffer. Now, you might suffer in this life in your marriage with your spouse in some way, but the truth remains, for the most part, no one can ultimately harm you. Will you cry? Yes. Will you pray harder? Yes. Will you go to God in a way you never have before? Yes. But no one's reactions can harm your righteousness, your righteous behavior. Most folks, spouses included, don't harm the one who is deeply committed to doing zealous goodness. Most people, verse 18, who are harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, as we heard this morning from our pastor, humble, 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 no one's going to hurt you for that. That's the true nature of suffering, that you won't suffer most of the time if you're righteous, but, and he gives a caveat there, and this introduces, this introduces the flip side of the coin. Even if you do suffer, look at verse 14, you're still blessed. You're still blessed. You're blessed if you should suffer, meaning that if your aggressive goodness most of the time still will eliminate the opportunity for suffering to happen because most people don't react wrongly to righteous goodness, yet still, even if it does happen, you're blessed, man or woman. This is a beatitude. This is like the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. I was listening to the radio this morning of a radio station with a guy who was preaching from a church that's local to here, and it was the most horrible rendition of the Beatitudes I've ever heard. And he made it into some kind of, he talked about, he talked about blessed are those who are lowly, who are are, are uh, you know, uh, meek. He talked about it as that you have to find the middle ground with people because the word in the Greek comes from an excessive anger, an excessive angerlessness. It's the medium. And he went in a totally different direction. I had to actually look up the church to make sure I'll never go there. <laughs> he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are all the blessings, the beatitudes. This too is a beatitude. You are blessed, 1 Peter 3, you are blessed if you suffer for the sake of righteousness. Now, you need to realize, and let me help you a little bit because I'm sure your mind is kind of going through a lot of different paradigms right now. You need to realize the divine nature of suffering. You won't suffer, honestly, in our culture most of the time if you do the right thing. Uh, No one can at least do you ultimate harm because God's watching. And if they do try to harm you, and if they do try to discredit you and malign you and slander you and criticize you, 
and demand things against you, guess what? You're blessed beyond words. You're blessed beyond words. Blessing meaning the kind of beautiful happiness that is like a bliss, a spiritual blessedness, a bliss-like quality. Because now you are more like Jesus Christ than ever before. And the disciples and the prophets that came before. So the first thing you need to do is realize the divine nature of suffering. What's the divine nature of suffering? Number two. Second, not only do you need to realize the divine nature of suffering, but also you need to revere the divine source of suffering. Revere the divine source of suffering. Not only do you realize the divine nature of suffering, but now revere the divine source of suffering. And we see that in verses 14 and 15, 14b. And do not fear their intimidation... And do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. This is essential. This is so important. This is the heart and soul of the Christian life. This is the whole progressive sanctification idea that's kind of reduced down to two simple thoughts. Look at the thoughts with me. First, Peter says, verse 14b, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. The original simply says, do not fear their fear. If you heard me originally, I read out of the Legacy Standard Bible, and it said, do not fear their fear. I studied in the New American Standard, and at the last moment thought, no, I'm going to bring this Bible anyway. So as I'm reading it, I thought that kind of gave away the punchline, but that's exactly right. Do not fear their fear. That could either mean, do not fear the fear they are trying to bring on you, or it could mean, don't fear the same things they fear. I say that because Peter is quoting here from Isaiah 8. So go there with me real quick. Isaiah 8, a very profound portion of Scripture. It's here in Isaiah 8 that the prophet is warning the people of Israel to not become like those who don't trust the Lord. Do you get that? Do not become like those who don't trust the Lord in their behavior and in their emotions. And look what he says in Isaiah 8, verse 11 through 14. Isaiah 8, 11 through 14. For thus Yahweh spoke to me with a strong hand and disciplined me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear, and you shall not tremble. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your cause of trembling. Then he shall become a sanctuary to both the houses of Israel. Pretty profound. You see what I'm saying? Isaiah is saying, when you fear what they fear, when you fear what the unbelievers fear, when you fear the whole unrighteous world, what they fear, you're telling the unrighteous people that what they fear is worth fearing. You are aligning your emotions and your values to hold, to be the same as this world, and that's not how you're supposed to live. Now, go back to First Peter, but keep your finger here. Go back to First Peter, but keep your finger in Isaiah. In 1 Peter here, we see that the emphasis is more along the lines of don't fear their intimidation. Don't fear how they bully you or, or don't fear how they try to make you ashamed for your aggressive goodness. You're, you're letting this, he's saying, trouble you. 
You are consumed with it. You're consumed with the way this world is operating. You stay up night after night, and you're worrying about how you're going to handle them, and you're afraid of the fact that you can't take just another yelling match with them, and you can't confront them anymore. You can't take one more explosion. You can't take how they make you feel inside. Peter says, don't do that. Don't be fearful. Don't be troubled. How is that possible, you say? Well, look at verse 15. Rather, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as, what is he saying? What does sanctify Christ mean? Go back to Isaiah 8. I mean, I want to show you a pattern here. And you're going to see it at the end of verse 12. And now, 13. You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear, and you shall not tremble. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your cause of trembling. So what is he saying? Don't fear man, fear God. Don't fear man, fear God. Do you see that? Don't fear man. Don't fear what men fear. Instead, fear the Lord. Fear Yahweh. Now, back to 1 Peter 3.15. He's drawing from Isaiah 8, and he's done that purposely, this statement about Christ, and he's put Christ in the same position in Isaiah, in, in 1 Peter 3, as Isaiah put Yahweh. So he's speaking of Christ in the same way. He's speaking of who it is you're to revere, who it is you're to truly fear, who you're trying to align your life with. And he says, it's not the unholy ones, it's the holy one himself. And in fact, Peter, by doing this, by connecting Christ with Yahweh, is obviously connecting Christ with God. He is saying, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord God of the Old Testament, hey, folks, this is the God we worship. And by the way, Jesus is God. He is the one that Isaiah spoke of. He is the one to fear. But he doesn't use the word fear here in most translations. Instead, he uses the word sanctify. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Sanctify Christ as Lord. And sanctify, very simple understanding of this, maybe overly simplistic, is just to set something apart, to not be aligned with something, to set oneself apart from something. Uh, to designate something for a specific work or task. So the idea that flows from Isaiah 8 is he speaks of fearing God, nuanced by don't fear the world, but fear him who is set apart from the world, the holy one, the completely other one, which is God. So set apart, sanctify Christ by himself. He's separate from everything else. Sanctify him as Lord, master, the one you serve. So think of your marriage, think of the relationships that you're in right now, the people you live with. Can you do that? Is Christ your Lord? Yes, he's my Lord, but you are to set him apart in your heart as the Lord by revering him. Listen to this, more than revering the world. This is exactly what Peter himself heard our Lord say on more than one occasion. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Luke 12, 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one whom after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So look, this is the answer to suffering. Don't fear what they fear. Fear Christ. 
Don't fear what they fear. Fear Christ instead. And you might say, and maybe it's true, I'm doing that. I love Christ. I I love Christ more than my spouse. It's just I'm miserable. I'm not afraid of them. I just can't stand them. I suffer underneath all of this. Peter says you need to revere the source of the suffering. The source of your suffering, which is God. God is the source. Master over all your circumstances. You set Christ in front of them. You you obey him. You trust him. You submit to him in every situation, even when it hurts, even when the tears flow, even when you don't see any way out. I have this happen so many times in counseling, and it breaks my heart. People live for themselves. They don't live for Christ. In their marriage, they point fingers. They don't go back to themselves. They don't sit there and say to themselves, wait a second, wait a second. My marriage is a laboratory for my faith. I am to work out my salvation with fear and trembling within this laboratory. And I am continually sabotaging my own laboratory experiment by making it about me instead of making it about God. There's a third step moving along, a third way to approach unjust suffering, not only to realize the truth about suffering and to revere the source of suffering, but number three, recite the divine hope over suffering. Recite the divine hope over suffering. And look at me, or not look at me, look with me at verse 15. Look at me, look at me. Uh, <laughs> always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, we quote this often in evangelical kind of uh, terms, apologetic terms, because of the nature of what it's saying. But really, the context is unjust suffering. That's the context of this verse. And so we're going to look at what it tells us to do. But before we do that first, let me just, let's just meditate on the phrase that's in the middle of verse 15, where it says, for the hope that is in you. It's very, very important. The foundation The essential truth without which nothing can ever help you in this world, namely that if you are suffering for doing good at the hands of a sinful spouse, deep down inside, you don't have any hope in your, if you don't have any hope in your future eternal life, then that is a worthless struggle. The foundation has to be eternal life with Christ. That's the foundation of everything. And I think that angle on this verse is much more than the courage that it takes to speak of Christ or the manner. It's not talking about, I hope I can evangelize within the hard times that are coming across me. What's much more, more in hope and much more important here is this, that you have hope in the midst of all of it. Do you have essentially down deep inside hope in God, in Christ? First Peter 3 says it, This way, at the very beginning of this wonderful letter, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's a living hope. And try to think about this. And if the hope is not alive, then really meditate on this. It's a living hope. It's not the kind of hope where you say, I really hope I'm going to heaven. I really hope this righteous suffering is going to get me to the pearly gates. I really hope that Christ has forgiven me because that kind of hope is not hope at all. Now, this kind of hope is biblical hope. This is the kind of hope that says, though I can't see it, though I can't even feel it yet, I know with every fiber of my heart and my being that heaven is my future. Christ is my Savior. The world is my bus stop. 
My suffering is not in vain. I suffer because my future isn't here anyway. And if you don't have that kind of biblical hope, then you're going to suffer in vain, my friend. You're just going to suffer in vain because you can give a defense, you can give an apology, if you will, with all the details of doctrinal precision. You can be a great theologian and still be shaking in your shoes in fear and trembling because your hope is a worldly hope because it hasn't gone six inches down into your heart and become real. But if you're like Abraham, who though he was a man who made some marital blunders, he still was a man of great hope. When the world pricks you wide open until you bleed, you should bleed the assurance of your salvation, the assurance for the hope of heaven. Your future will be very bright. So in your situation, in your life, whatever it is, if you're in a situation in your marriage, in your relationships, in your home, with your roommates, whomever it might be, even in your workplace, if your assurance isn't in the blessed hope, the living hope that lives within you because Christ is alive in you, if it's not that, then all of your suffering, according to Peter, is in vain. But if you are living with that wonderful hope and you're sanctifying Christ in your heart, then no matter what happens to you and what can happen to you, what can eternally happen to you, everything is going to be just fine because you've aligned yourself with the master of your soul. Romans 4.18 concerning Abraham says, in hope against hope he believed so he might become the father of many nations. What does that mean? It means that even when the entire world, his wife, Everyone around him said there's no way what God said would come true. Abraham still believed God. When everybody, it makes me think of Noah, says there's no way this is going to happen, they still believe God, and that's hope. And if you have that kind of hope, recite it to yourself all the time. Recite it to yourself. He says, make a defense. Make a defense to everyone who asks you. Make a defense. Recite it. Speak it. Tell people. You know what that implies? That they can see your hope on the outside of your life. They can see that you have hope, so they ask about your hope. If you're a Christian, it's not because you told them you're a Christian. Because they see something's different with you. Not because you memorize your testimony and you're able to recite it really quickly to whoever asks you. That's a good thing, but that's not what he's pointing out. He's saying that your testimony is worn on your sleeve. That some people, even those that are slandering you and maligning you, might at some moment just shut their mouths long enough to kind of cock their head to one side and say, how come you don't knock my head off? How come the way I am with you, you're continually good to me regardless of what I do to you? How come you seem to be living for something more in this world than I know? So much more that it seems as if what I do doesn't even matter to you as I try to assault you. And that's the point. You have so much hope that it's literally bursting out of you in every direction. And so Peter says when people, your boss, your family, your spouse, they see that kind of hope in your heart, then just recite the reasons. Don't yell at them. Don't get your pound of flesh. Just tell them why. You want to know why I endure with you? Do you know why I put up with you? You want to know why I put up with all your baloney? Okay, here it is. I love Christ, and I have sanctified him in my heart. And then look at the end of verse 15. Do you do it by vomiting at them? No. Gentleness, reverence, gentleness, reverence. And that takes us right back to chapter 3, verse 1. 
doesn't it? Be submissive to those who are disobedient. Be submissive to those who are disobedient, ladies. Be chaste and respectful. And verse 4 of chapter 3, be gentle and quiet because God loves that. God's pleased with that. And recite the reason for your hope with restraint. Always say your hope with restraint. Don't let them provoke you. You've got to have such a deep hope for that to happen. You've got to have such a relationship with Christ. It has to be real and living with you and in you. And that's always the model for the Christian. Give me just two more minutes, and I'm going to give you the third, the third way, the third point, how to deal with unrighteous suffering. Not only do we realize divine truth, revere the divine source, and recite the divine hope, but number four, remember the divine duty. Remember the divine duty in suffering. This is very short. Remember the divine duty. Verse 16, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Okay, this is vital. This is where most people blow it. You need to make sure that regardless of the accusations of others, regardless of how they wrong you and are against you, regardless of how much pleasure they seem to gain out of making you miserable, you're not just to say the right things and restrain the right things, but you have to, in your heart, be the right thing. Does that make sense? You have to be the right thing. Your conscience That part of you that only you and God knows needs to be clean. It needs to be pure. And if it's not, you need to repent and ask him to forgive you. You need to say, I really am truly trusting Christ. I really and truly am suffering by doing good because he is the Lord of my life. And I crucified those deep resentments, those bitter thoughts at the foot of the cross. Therefore, my conscience is clean. And you know what? If you do that, two quick results will happen. Either verse 16b, those who slander you will be put to eternal shame. Or verse 1, back in chapter 3, they'll be one to Christ by the excellence of your suffering. So either you're going to be vindicated by the judgment of Christ or the salvation of Christ, either way. And we don't always see it in this lifetime, do we? We don't always see it here. Sometimes people get away with their abuses all day long, but God hears you and he sees you and God knows your heart. And verse 17, for it is better. If you should will it so that, if God should will it so that you suffer for doing good rather than doing wrong. And even then, God still might for his purposes and his timing allow you to suffer. We just had a whole course by Derek Thomas about the, the, the theology of suffering and, and, and theology of pain. And he took us through the book of Job again, and he took us through all these different portions of scripture. God allows it and God restrains it. Because that's what he does sometimes. That's what a father does. And that's what the father allowed to happen to the son. And we will see that next time. Because the next time we're in First Peter, we're going to th- think about the suffering of Christ. And we're going to see one of the most difficult portions of all of Scripture. And we're going to dive in head first. It was Martin Luther, the great reformer, who was probably persecuted more than any man in his lifetime, wrote this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, 
his doom is sure, and one little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in First Peter and for this encouragement and exhortation and in some ways an admonishment if we're not living righteously in an unrighteous world. Father, let your spirit uh, convict the hearts, give us insight. Let the implications of this in each individual life uh, ring true and bring us back together again next week uh, in love. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.